1: You got na na Hi! ya Na 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 nine na na the na 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 Ay, na, ay, na, ay,
0: no, shalom, shalom, beautiful friends. It is great to see you. That nigun is from my, my friend uh, Shalomo Katz in Israel, uh, called the nigun of the birds. Nigun of the birds. Um, if you listen to his recording, it'll sound a lot better than what I just did. But it got me excited, at least, uh, the nigun of the birds. Check it out. Very, uh, very, uh, uh, very uh, inspired by how we can learn by nature. And that's part of his his ideas that we can learn from the birds. Um, in fact, that's one of the stories that the Jews, the Israelites, crossed through the sea and as slaves, they forgot to sing, how to sing. And they looked up in the sky and they saw birds chirping, heard birds chirping. And they once again learned how to sing how, how to sing their song of liberation. Midin of the birds. So friends, today, we're going to take a pause in our um, normal, categorization of acts of chesed, of acts of kindness, and think about random acts of kindness, as opposed to kindness for the widow, kindness for the animal, kindness for um, the bride and groom or the like. Um, We're just gonna talk about random, maybe even radical acts of kindness. So let's start with a little poll here, if you will. How I do random acts of kindness. Option one, a random act of kindness when I needed it changed my life. Option two, I did a random act of kindness when needed that truly changed another's life. Option three, both. Option four, neither, right? Did a random act of kindness change your life? Did you do a random act of kindness that may have changed another life? Both, neither. What do you think? Let's see. give you a few seconds there. Okay, let's see our results. Okay. 17% um, said they received it, but they're not sure they gave it. No one said they gave it, but never received it. 67% said both and 70% said neither. Okay. Very interesting. And um, you know, I was just sharing last night with some friends that um, um, a friend of mine recently shared that she was at rock bottom in her life, like truly suicidal, like maybe hours or minutes away from it. And she was just buying coffee um, and Someone bought uh, some, Someone in the car in front of her bought her coffee. And she said it was a radically game-changing moment um, that she decided to reaffirm her life. Um, just that simple thing. And for um, some of us might be able to relate to that, some of us not. But it's a, an important reminder for those of us who question whether we're having enough impact. Those of us who feel like, oh, I, I'm not a legislator. I'm not a philanthropist. I'm not a major change maker. What am I really doing? That We can remember that sometimes little acts of chesed, um, uplifting of others, can be total game changers for others, total game changers. And so all we have to do is stay in the game, not be cynical, make sure we're doing acts of kindness each day, and be humble about what impact that has, never knowing what could truly change your life. Okay, friends, <clears throat> we know so well how planned, intentional, and specific acts of chesed can be. But how about spontaneous and random acts of kindness? There are infinite opportunities each day to lend a hand, elevate a soul, give joy to another. But with the full list we've been learning about, does the Torah want us to consider these as well? The Rambam taught, in the Mishnah Torah. It's a rabbinic positive mitzvah to visit the sick, comfort the mourners, escort the dead, dower the bride, accompany the departing guests, as well as to cheer the bride and groom and to assist them in whatever they need. Even though all these precepts are of rabbinic origin, they are implied in the biblical verse, via hafta kamocha, you shall love your fellow like yourself. That is whatever you would have others do to you, do to your siblings in Torah and precepts. So friends, what the Rambam is teaching here is that acts of kindness are not specified in the Torah. It talks about Shabbat, talks about kosher, talks about the holidays, talks about this and that. It doesn't say, go do random acts of kindness, but he says it says, love your fellow as yourself. And all these random acts of kindness we do are included in that biblical precept. Essentially, the Rambam is teaching that acts of chesed, even though not specifically listed, in the 613 Biblical mitzvot, the Tariyag mitzvot, are indeed still a part of the Torah's highest commi- commitment toward love, empathy, and kindness. Another way to root kindness in the Torah is not directly through loving your neighbor, but through emulating the divine. Here's what it says in Sefer Mitzvot. We are commanded to emulate God as it is written, and you shall go in God's ways. This implies emulating the good actions and good attributes that are used to describe God. So one option is to root it in loving your fellow. The other option is to root it in uh, imitatio Dei, emulating the divine attributes. The rabbis taught that acts of kindness sustain the world. Here's what it says in Pirke Avot. The world rests upon three things, upon Torah study, upon divine service, and upon the practice of acts of kindness. Right? Learning, prayer, and kindness sustains the world. Friends, what happens to a three-legged table if you kick out one leg? It falls. This doesn't mean that these matter one-third. It means each of them matters enough that the table falls if you knock it out. You knock out kindness, there's no Judaism. You knock out spirituality, there's no Judaism. You knock out Torah learning, there's no Judaism. These three, the rabbi said, are what you need the mind learning, you need the heart, of spirituality, and you need the hands of kindness, right? We need all three of those together to sustain the world. Psalms teaches us, Olam Chesed Yibane," The world will be built through kindness. My friend Menachem Creditor uh, has a famous melody. If you Google it, you can find it also. It goes, Olam Chesed da." Google it, it's a beautiful song. The world will be built through kindness. Although the rabbis listed three things that sustain the world, the Maharal teaches of the centrality of kindness. The Maharal teaches. I don't think he looked like that, but they didn't have pictures back then. (laughs) Why does the world stand specifically upon these three things and not others, Right, dealing with Pirkei Avot we just talked about? The reason is that everything that was created only deserves to exist. And as much as it was inherently good, It is the goodness in each object that allows it to exist. For this reason, we find that after the creation of each object during the six days of creation, it is written that God saw that it was good. Humanity's capacity for goodness can be divided into three parts. Humanity's own intrinsic goodness, our goodness in relationship with God, and our goodness in relationship with other human beings. Has said corresponds to this third aspect of a person's life, for it is eminently clear that when a person performs kind deeds for their fellow, without expecting any reimbursement, they are being good toward them. There is, in fact, no greater good than when one bestows kindnesses upon others from their own volition. In doing so, they are truly and really good. The Talmud teaches that acts of chesed are even greater than giving tzedakah. Here's what it says in the Talmudic uh, tractate of Sukkot. The rabbis taught gimulut chesedim, random acts of kindness, is greater than tzedakah in three ways. Tzedakah is with one's money, whereas gimulut chesedim is with one's body and with one's money. Tzedakah is for the poor, whereas gimulut chesedim is for the poor and the wealthy. Tzedakah is for the living, whereas Gimelut Chesedim is for the living and the dead. I get it? So tzedakah in rabbinic thought is only money, is only for the poor, and is only for the living. Gimelut Chesedim is with money and body, is for the poor and the rich, and is for the living and the deceased. In fact, the act of burying the dead and tending to all of their needs is referred to as Chesed Shel Emet, Truest kindness, as the dead cannot repay another for their acts of kindness. The Talmud further picks up on the fact that the Torah begins and ends with an act of chesed. We've taught this, we've shared this before from Sota. Rabbi Simlai deduced the Torah begins with gimelut chesedim and it ends with gimelut chesedim, as it says, "God made for man and his wife cloaks of leather and dressed them." It ends with gimelut chesedim, as it is written that God buried Moshe in the valley. The Talmud is stressing here that the Torah is bracketed by acts of chesed performed by God, God's self, as if, as if to suggest that we too are to infuse our entire observance of Torah from beginning to end with acts of kindness. It follows that the observance of mitzvot, even or perhaps especially mitzvot ben adam makom, mitzvot between humans and God, such as something like kashrut, without a commitment to chesed, is lacking a key element of what God is asking of us as Torah-engaged Jews. Perhaps one of the greatest acts of kindness one can bestow upon another is helping to lift up their self-esteem. After all, so many people around us have a low self-esteem and need support in being lifted up to see their own goodness. Consider this story from Rabbi Avraham Tursky of blessed memory. Goodness tends to propagate itself. It's apt to form a chain. A story occurs to me of a man named Avi. I first met him while I was in Tel Aviv, speaking before a group of ex-convicts in recovery who were coming into our Israeli rehabilitation program. Right, Torsky was famous for his rehabilitation work, work for addicts, works for ex-felons, works work for people who <clears throat> were in rehabilitation programs. When I began to speak about self-esteem, this man interrupted me. How can you talk of this? I've been in and out of jail for for my thirty four years of life. I've been a thief since I was eight. When I'm out of prison, I can't find work, and my family doesn't even want to see me. I stopped and I asked him if he'd passed by a jewelry store l- lately. Consider the diamonds in the window, I said. Try and think what they look like when they come out of the mine, lumps of dirty ore. It takes a person who understands the diamond to take the shapeless mound and bring out its intrinsic beauty. (laughs) That's what we do here. We look for the diamond in everyone. We help the soul's beauty come to the surface. We polish it until it gleams. We're all like the dirt covered ore and our business is to find the diamond within it and polish it until it grows. Two years passed, Avi had graduated from the treatment center and was integrated into the community working in construction. One day, Annette, who manages our halfway house, received a call from a family whose elderly matriarch had died and wanted to donate her furniture. Annette called Avi and asked him to pick up the furniture. When he went to pick it up, he saw that it wasn't worth saving, but not wanting to insult the family, he hauled it up anyways. While Avi was laboring to carry the shabby sofa up the stairs to the halfway house, an envelope fell from the cushions. After getting the couch inside, Avi retrieved the envelope, in which he found 5,000 shekels, let's say roughly $1,700. Avi called Annette and told her about the envelope. Annette said it must be reported to the family. The family was so gratified by Annette and Avi's honesty that they told her to keep the money for the halfway house. As a result, the halfway house was able to buy one more bed and provide room for one more guest, creating another opportunity for recovery. And Avi wasn't a thief anymore. Another year went by, and I returned to the halfway house. There was a sign hanging above the entry. It read, diamonds polished here. (laughs) I love that story of transformation. And friends, the opportunities are everywhere, everywhere, to polish diamonds. Rabbi Shlomo Volbi taught, chesed is not limited to money. A nice word, a smile, these can give new life to someone who has given up on themselves. A word of encouragement can bring joy. These are small things, yet so significant. In general, there are so many acts of chesed that are easily within our reach. If only we would notice that they are needed. The prophet Micah sought to describe the Torah in one verse. He wrote, God has told you, man, what is good and what God demands of you, only to do justice, to love chesed, and to walk modestly with your God, right? It's like if you are building a sanctuary, or you were building a coffee shop for learning, this is the quote you put above above the entryway. Seek justice, love, con- kindness, walk humbly. One, one of the most prevalent Jewish theologies around why God desired or perhaps even needed to create a world was to do enormous acts of kindness. So too, one might suggest that we exist as human beings in order to do acts of kindness, right? It's like that college student who's laid up late at night. Why are we here? Why are humans created anyways? Like the most <laughs> dominant Jewish answer is we're here to spread kindness. And we are here because God needed to, to share kindness. Imagine if we challenged ourselves each day to do new acts of kindness. Those that others expect from us and those that are random or above and beyond and not expected to conclude perhaps the most exciting way to live is not in seeking the thrill of a new vacation or a new food, although these pleasures can and perhaps should surely be enjoyed, but in the excitement in seeking out new ways each day to lift up others, to repair little bits of brokenness, and to add joy to others. Then we will have actualized our existence and our purpose. Okay, friends, I'd love to hear from you.
2: Hi, Matthew. How are you, everyone? Thank you for Thank last you. night. Sorry we couldn't make it.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much.
2: The interesting thing is if you institutionalize, and that's the wrong word, the concept that you are to do kindness at all times, it becomes less random by the giver, but is more random to the receiver. I'm thinking of a clergy person I know here in town, whenever they go out in the summer heat, has bottles of cold water and stops to hand them out to people. In the winter, it's food and things like that. This person has it as part of their, what I'll call, ritual of kindness. But for the person receiving it, it seems more random that a car stops at the intersection. And I think that, it's not life changing for the giver, but for the recipient, it may be life altering to know that mm-hmm. someone stopped and actually engaged with them as a person. Great, great, great. And I don't do, I think we all fall short of what we think we should do. Mm-hmm. And I tell often the story of a contractor who was doing work in our home and we went to tip one of the employees for a really good job and he said no we're paid enough give to the homeless give to the person on the street but in phoenix only in june july august and september because anyone who's out on the street in the heat really needs it and i don't trust people out begging during the tourist season this was a contractor.
0: wow so yeah thank you matthew so a few things there thank you for sharing those on, on the last point, man, if I could think of one spiritual revolution we needed among many others, but perhaps more than any other, is the sense that people feel that they are enough and they have enough. How many times do people turn down a gift, like you're saying, because they say, listen, someone needs this more than me? Like the sense, like, I don't need, like, I have enough, I'm here to serve. And yet people um, are insatiable insatiable to fill some bucket that has no bottom to it. Um, uh, And so thank you for that point. And on your point around the institutionalizing or the ritualizing or the the making consistent of a practice, I think here, um, I'd like to see us be uh, most focused on the need of the receiver than on kind of the randomness for ourselves. Yeah. Even though I think it's important, I think like one question is like, yes, it, and I love your example, like the, the, the passing out of cold water is no longer a random act of kindness for this person who has built it into their life and into their work. But for the recipient, it feels random. I'm more concerned about the recipient than I am about about the giver. Um, uh, that said, as, as those of us um, in giving positions, we can challenge us on both fronts. Now, in politics, the politically conservative argument on taxation is don't tax me more because I want to cultivate virtue through my giving, right? Now, there's some merit to that and clearly a flaw to it as well. I think in theory, the merit to that is, yes, like if you force me to give money towards welfare, I don't really cultivate the virtue and the practice of giving. And that's a loss to me as someone who wants to become a giving person, as someone who wants to have the ritual of giving. Um, that said, we simply know that when tax, taxation decreases, that does not lead to um, uh, a systemic, rapid uh, rise of tzedakah. Right. That if right if the average American is donating one percent as opposed to the biblically prescribed ten percent of income. Um, that if there, if the taxation of the wealthy goes down, we don't just see all of a sudden the wealthy giving 10% instead of one, right. Um, it might mean there's more savings, there's more investing, there's more of this and that. And so like, are we more concerned with the giver or the receiver? And that's, that's, that's an old, that's an old, uh, debate. Certainly we all agree it should be both, right. Um, that, you know, people should have the opportunities to give and the government has a role to tax. But that dilemma of, of how do we systematize giving and the security of those who need it most, while also incentivizing people to be more of a giving nature, is an interesting tension. So so thank you, Matthew. Yes, Aglaya.
3: Hi. Okay. Hi. So this is going to be one of those weird things when I'm in Aglaiaville but um, I have a tendency to look at things backwards. Um, so it... it Something reminded me of something I'd written about Passover like three years ago or whatever, but long story short, looking at things from the opposite angle. Okay, so random acts of kindness. Um, what I was writing in that um, was about basically like um, slavery is freedom, that kind of stuff. You know, anyway, random acts of kindness also could be about gratitude. If you're like, because you are actually, well, not only gratitude for like everything that you have though, but if you're treating another person like they are worth giving. You know like giving to like whatever random act of kindness you're giving um that could also be about um acknowledging just this person is god's creation and i'm grateful for god's creation and so i'm going to treat this person like a creation of god and be kind to them or whatever i don't know i mean that's just me but i don't know if you want to like respond to that or not
0: but. Yeah. thank you for sharing that thank you for sharing that um, in the Chavot Halavavot, the author Rabbi Bachya ibn Pakuda named Hakara Tatov, gratitude, as the most central virtue, which he believed everything stemmed from. He said, firstly, he said, don't try to prove the existence of God to me with math or with science or with theological um, acrobatics. He said, my relationship to God is not developed through proofs. It's based on my human need for gratitude and my need to have a place to express my gratitude right to express my gratitude for existing for the good things in my life yes there are specific people i can think but beyond that i need a recipient to express my gratitude and i call that god so too on the on the ethical level beyond the spiritual level like i need a place to express my gratitude and all these people around me is that place and so gratitude can become the source of all of this goodness, spiritual goodness, ethical goodness, to like really shift from a culture of entitlement to a psychology of gratitude. Not like, I don't get enough. I don't have enough. I'm not enough. Like I'm resentful. Not to say there aren't people who should feel resentful or feel they have enough or feel they have a right or a claim to more. We can have a right and claim to more and, you know, hold some resentments. And yet, every person on a certain level can cultivate a level of gratitude and that gratitude gives birth to a responsibility. So I love that you brought that up. Thank you. Hi, Sarah. Good
4: morning. morning. Uh, So uh, several things have struck me as we've gone along. One is moving forward in our lives from our heart rather than from our head Mm -hmm. and remembering that that is the place where we meet others whether we're embracing, but embracing life is about, for me is about moving from heart forward. Um, When you ask to look at this from the receiver, I'm not quite sure where you're going. I'd say that trying to be in a receiver's vantage point, I mean, I, I certainly can imagine as a receiver receiving an act of loving kindness, or especially random. But in handing to a receiver, often I can see where a receiver may feel victimized or stigmatized, um, where it's difficult to understand that it's actually a gift to the giver to accept that act as an act of love and kindness. Yep. And that I am giving to that giver when yep. I receive in that way. Yep. And I'm sure.
0: Yeah, thank you, Sarah, very interesting. And um, we see this exact tension in, um, in Jewish ethics where we all know Maimonides hierarchy of giving and how much emphasis he places on the anonymous, non-direct giving, as opposed to the recognized direct giving. So on the one hand, we have that, which is certainly Talmudic Rudin and Maimonides codified. This sense that um, both that the humble person should not look for recognition and that the recipient will save face and dignity by not having that encounter. And we know there's a counter argument as well, that there are those recipients who want relationship They find dignity in that that the warm embrace, the relationship, the the dynamic that emerges from that act of kindness. And Sarah cautions us towards um, the stigmatization, the victimization that can emerge from such a thing, a power dynamic that can emerge, and how that can oftentimes be so intense that actually it flips who is the giver and who is the receiver. So thank you for that powerful point. And I think we have to cultivate the emotional intelligence to think about each dynamic. Who is this recipient? What do they need? Um, Who am I as a giver? What do I need? Um, Because some people, right, um, we don't have to have perfectly pure motives. The good feeling that emerges from the encounter is enough to sustain them doing this. And the truth is, if that's going to sustain them, more important is that they give than have this purity of motives, assuming it's not causing a harm. And so there's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot to unpack there. So let me just read Lauren's um, comment on the chat just for the folks who are listening to the podcast or watching the video, because you can't see it. Lauren's on a train right now and she writes, I walk with two canes. Every time someone gives me a seat on public transit or holds a door open for me, my day is made so much better. Today, getting on the train the via rail, Employee walked me to the train, carried my suitcase, and put it in my luggage rack. How wonderful! Yes, and so some things like that that feel so obvious, like if you have a physical capacity to help someone um, who might need that physical support, um, how obvious that is, and yet just how big of a deal it can mean to people. My mother is currently using a walker for a number of months now, and um, and I've seen how she uses this uh, this like you know thing to pick up things off the ground. I forgot what you call one of those grabbers. Um, and, um, and just living through her mind and through her experience to see, um, the kinds of support we sometimes need. And there's so many people like that beyond just, beyond just that, those two examples. Yes, Toby, uh, well, Toby, and then we'll go back to Matthew. I see his, his, um, his mute came off. Hi, Toby.
5: Hi. Um, I want to respond a little bit to, to Sarah's comment or to comment on that, um, before I converted to Judaism, I did a lot of, I was Presbyterian and I did a lot of mission work for the Presbyterians and boots on the ground mission work. Like you go there and you carry rocks in a bucket and things like that. And one of the things that we, we had a number of, of discussions about, about that, um, about what we were supposed to be doing. And, and the deal was that we, we were not providing charity to these people. We we had to walk beside them, you know, walk next to them, and that the that it could be very troubling to some groups of people um, to have one group sort the power structure is is such that the people in the higher power structure, which would have been us Presbyterian white folk, um, have so much more power and ability than the people we were serving. And um, the idea is that they are not supposed to rely on us. They are supposed to learn and work alongside us so that they're not dependent. And it's a matter of self-esteem and issues like that. I'm not saying this very well, but I know that you know what I mean, Uh, but we had to be very careful of how much we, we did for them rather than with them.
0: Thank you, Toby. Um, I want to share a quote I may or may not have shared in the past, but I'm going to put it in the chat as well. It's from Lila Watson. Mm -hmm. And she says, if you have come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come here because your liberation is bound with mine, let us work together. Um, I love that quote. I love that quote in terms of how we think about um, how we need each other. Yes. Hi, Matthew.
2: Yeah, I was just thinking of someone I know, very close, close relative who because she's late 60s, early 70s, passed out. Whether it was a seizure or not, they don't know. She's fine. But now she's experiencing everyone wanting to do things for her. Mm. And how she now has to understand their needs and her needs. And the first couple of weeks, I don't want anything doing for me. I can't drive. I will mm. so it's a change in the relationship of the giver. To now a recipient.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's, she remarked that it's very interesting being in that role and thinking things differently. And her husband said to her, I'm basically retired. Wherever you want to go, I'll drive you. And if you're going to be there, I'll find a Starbucks. I'll sit there. I'll read. I'll have my laptop. I'll do. And she said, I resented what I was doing until I realized it was for him, not for me. And it was an interesting twist. And it's a very generous couple to now be recipients mm-hmm. and there's nothing it looks like there's nothing wrong with her she's pre- but she can't be with the grandchildren alone she she's got a period of time where they want to just rule everything out yeah. but it's a very interesting thing like a generous person all of a sudden she's now appreciating what other people do and why they do it and it helps them not just the recipient
0: Fascinating point about um, identity shifting. Uh, so yeah. thank you for that, Matthew. Yeah, very, very interesting. And how we think about um, ourselves in the world in, in, in that way and how that can shift in times of crises. Um, yeah. You know, a, a, a rabbi I was talking to recently, he talked, he said, he breaks up his pastoral cases in three categories. He said, there's those who don't actually have enormous needs for support, but take up a lot of demands for support. <laughs> Then there's the category of people who um, uh, um, uh, of people who have enormous amount of needs and take up a lot of space. And then there's the people who have enormous needs but don't take up any space um, and don't don't ask for the support. And how his sweet spot is that third group, and how he yeah. bends over backwards to find them and support them. And um, and um, yeah, and it's it's really complicated. And the other thing to remember here is we do this because. For the persons end in themselves. I mean, they are an end in themselves. You know, we can critique Kant a lot, but one benefit to Kant is that he really helped us to move towards seeing away from a utilitarianism of seeing people as an ends in themselves. um, You know, in a certain regard, and that's why, in a utilitarian ethos, you can let a bunch of people die to save more, or you actively kill some even to save more. But for him, like you can't in deontology um, because a person is an end in themselves. And, um, and yet the reason we do kindness is not only because a person is an ends in themselves, but also because they have a ripple effect. A Christian family member told me that the Pat, they heard a sermon from a pastor who was the pastor of the church in Highland park, Illinois, where that shooter on 4th of July did a mass shooting in a Jewish community. Remember that Remember just a few months ago on July 4th. And, um, and the pastor said, i'm 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 profoundly embarrassed. This shooter used to come to the church. Our ushers didn't know what to do with him. He looked depressed and 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 despondent and um and you know, clearly in need of support, but nobody knew how to help him. And we just kind of let him show up, even though it was awkward and and his realization like we need to figure out how to um, embrace people like this. You know, now we don't want, we have to be careful here not to stigmatize in a sense that the person who is arriving with mental illness, with challenges, we now view as we should help them because they're going to be a threat to society. And yet, um, there's a dual reality here. They're an end in themselves to, you know, to figure out how to support those struggling. And we also know um, that a lot of harms can be done by those who aren't seen and aren't given the support they need. And so, um, yeah, lots to unpack there. Okay, back to you, Aglaya.
3: Actually, before I go on, I'll tell you: if you guys ever see me rolling my eyes, um, it's not you; it's because I've gotten like really lost in thought, and I roll. I used to get busted for that all the time in school. So, anyway, just so you know, I also
0: have a problem where when people share really bad sad news with me, I smile.
3: (laughs) Oh no!
0: Twitch. Someone's sharing horrible news, and I smile because it's, it's my emotional overload, but anyways. Yeah. So I, I, okay.
3: Anyway, that was just something to like throw out there. Cause I realized how many times I roll my eyes and I'm like, Oh God, I used to get busted for this, but okay. Throw this out there also. What about, um, okay. I'm embarrassed to, you know, like say this and everything though, but sometimes, um, I have this issue with pride and God's own loving kindness to me. um, I don't know if anybody else has been this, but you have to find some sort of way to like actually justify it because you're too proud to admit that God's been done on act of loving kindness for you. Mm. So I don't know if anybody else has been through that though, but I, for a long time, I've had to like find some sort of like weird scientific explanation because I'm just weird like that and everything. But God does do uh, loving kindness. Uh,
0: Aglaia, so, yeah. uh, yeah, that's a fascinating point actually. That. Um, not not all who hold this theology, but perhaps some who hold the theology that the divine does not intervene in the world. Everything is just random. Mm-hmm. Um, for some of them, there may be a block that says, I am not deserving of a specific act of loving kindness from the, the divine. Right. So clearly this is just random. This is just the universe, how it, how it operates. But mm-hmm. if I believe I I am deserving because i am also human and deserving of love um and am, am am deserving of love that that is a pathway towards embracing god in our own lives now to, i want to just reiterate not everyone who who is a minimalist or denies god's intervention in the world and thinks it's all you know randomness or scientific and not it's all just laws of nature um of course uh, d- does that mean that they are not able to receive love or have a self esteem issue but it is an interesting case where it could be so thank you for for hearing that that there's a humility, um and and a power and a power to seeing oneself worthy of love, and uh, it'll be very hard to see other people as worthy of love if we ourselves are not, um uh, experience ourselves as worthy of love. Let me say one other thing, I think we have another societal problem of loving children too much. Now that sounds terrible, right? <laughs>
3: it's not i I don't
0: have a problem with that children are innocent they're all deserving of love and of education and of hugs and all this and that and yet why is it that we don't see all adults as equally worthy of love we have some mentality that we can be harsh in judging adults right because their flaws are their fault but a child like you can't blame a child for who they are you know and
3: there's that this, do the same things <laughs> they're human right, <laughs>
0: that, right? and so th- there is a sense that this overabundance of love for children and this over harsh judgment sometimes of adults and yet we're all just like children um yes, adults have more agency at least and most adults have more agency and more cognition and more experience and more education and this and that. So we there is a sense we should hold them to a higher standard right we we don't put a five-year-old in jail. Um, Or, you know, I'm not sure. Toby, when does juvenile even begin? 13? When does juvie begin? Well,
5: if you really want to know, if you commit a major felony, in other words, usually murder, um, sometimes mass rapes and things like that, um, you can be tried as an adult as early as 14. 14 is the age. Okay. is that that a federal standard? Uh, It's state and it's each state is different. There is no federal. Well, you can't. Here's another side of that. <clears throat> there's been a whole bunch of uh, Supreme Court cases <clears throat> that preclude the death penalty for those who commit a crime while under the age of 18. So that, that's sort of the other side of your question. Yeah, know,
0: that- yeah. yeah, totally. Very interesting. And as we know, um, in Judaism, you are a man and you are a woman at 12 and 13. I'm yet to meet a 12 or 13-year-old bar bat mitzvah uh, kid who was ready to take on life. As an adult, get a job and and get out there. <laughs> These days, um, usually you got to hit about thirty-eight. You know, you hit about thirty-eight. You're ready for adulthood. <laughs> um, but it is a fascinating and it's a legal category. I and mean, we think of it as just a cute bar bat mitzvah, like a little DJ and a little party, and you know, get or called. Or seventy-two. Yeah. yeah, or seventy-two. Yeah, seventy-two. You know, but. Legally, uh, you were an adult legally in 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 the Jewish eyes in in many senses. There's also an age of 20 category, which is also interesting. In any case, um, yeah. So a lot of uh, a lot of interesting stuff there around children and adults. Anyways, um, let's pause to hear from someone we haven't heard from yet. Hi, Cheryl. Hello.
6: Um, I'm really stuck, even though I enjoyed all of the learning. Yeah. Yeah. But I am stuck on the survey. Ah. I- I, I, I really, I, I said, should I put neither? Should I put both? Yes. I, I mean, if it's random, then I almost think that it's something that you don't think about and maybe the other person won't think about it either. It's just part of maybe who you are. You know, maybe it's like a, a human kindness or something that's innate. I, I mean, I can't say that I ever performed anything that was, you know kind and life-saving and also vice versa, that I never have been necessary. Maybe I have been, and I don't know, but I, I was really stuck on that when, you know, the whole use of the word random and uh-huh. how we do for others and others do for us and how we don't want to, I I, I think um, uh, what Matthew said about institutionalizing, uh, you know, these these kinds of things. I mean, Random can be anything. We don't know what effect it might have on someone else. You know, we don't know. So, I, I don't know, I was stuck way back on the survey.
0: <laughs> so. Carol, I love it, I love it. Thank you for that. And it's it's very humbling, you know. Um, you know, um, I'm sure you've all seen, or most of you have seen this video that's gotten viral so many times. There's a gentleman, a Gentile, uh, who lived in Europe during the Holocaust, who saved a lot of Jews, and he's in this massive auditorium. And um, they say, do you know how many lives you saved? now? I don't know. Do you know how many descendants or ancestors of those who are now alive because of who you saved? No, I have no idea, like I don't think I did much. And then the whole auditorium stands up. Has everyone seen this? I, I, I His name might've been Winston. Like thousands of people stand up in this auditorium and this old frail man looks around the room, like who are these people? And these are all the descendants of people that he directly saved in the holocaust it was then, a movie oh it's a movie oh yeah what's the movie called
6: you remember i i i, feel, I mean i remembered it was a movie when you said the name winston yeah. i think it was a movie
0: uh, and while cheryl's sharing that i'll give a little plug cheryl's on the jewish film festival board are you still on that board yes okay so the jewish film festival you should go out and see films like this that inspire us <laughs> um in any case um yeah so I, and so no, I, I think there's a positive and a negative message here the positive Well, the negative message is you want to do have a life worth living. You need to like go save thousands of lives. You know, you need to be Paul Farmer, like opening a medical clinic in Haiti. You need to like be this heroic person who like can like save thousands of lives directly. I think that's potentially the negative message is that that few of us are going to construct a life or find ourselves in a crisis where, where we engage in that. I think the positive message that we can flip on is that he had no idea this man had no idea the impact he had had. And actually, um, all of us who are in the enterprise of trying to do good every day, as everyone on the Zoom is, like right, trying to donate money every day, trying to um, lend a hand every day, trying to like offer what we can offer in the world to those we love and those we don't love yet, and have no idea how that is deeply affecting others. And I, the flip side, what Cheryl was saying, also have no idea who changed our story. It's like we all tell our story in the world. We have a narrative, and unfortunately, most of our narratives are about us. I made a decision, and I I did this great thing. But the truth is, it's a combination of big choices we made and a lot of kindness we received from family, from teachers, from strangers. And how do we tell that story in a well in a way that gives credit for the for the hard work we did? And also has the humility to say like, I can't even name the people. My first grade like English teacher, my third grade PE teacher, like, like this person I passed in the street, these people who change our lives in ways we don't even know. And the cynic says, you can't change the world. It's all the same stuff. The world is broken. Just watch the news, right? Humans are intrinsically selfish, right? Don't, don't waste your time doing stuff. It doesn't even work. You're maybe causing harm when you think you're doing good. You don't even know what you're doing, right? The cynic wants to tell us that. And then this other message emerges of like, oh my goodness, there is more good than evil happening in every moment. And we're recipients of good and givers of good in ways we can't even begin to measure the ripple effect. So yeah, so Cheryl, um, I appreciate that. I was hoping the survey would put us in existential paralysis and it it worked for at least you. So, (laughs) okay, I wanna just read what Ethan wrote for those who um, are not able to, to see it. He would. He wrote. I would also counter that point that we may never have the huge impact like in the in the movie example. That our faith teaches us that even if we save one life, it's as if we save the entire world. So it is important to understand the incredible opportunity we each have to do good. I love that point from Ethan there as well. That um, that a life is only good if if it's if it's measured in the number of uh, of impacts as opposed to the depth of impact. And just one, just one is enough. Ethan, you want to elaborate on that or?
2: I I was also. Um going to throw in there that, you know, when we think about sort of these transactions of doing good, oftentimes I think about a cup that we carry around and pour water into people's cups to try to fill them up. Um, And so it's important that we make sure that our own cup is filled in order to be be able to go out and do goodness. And so when we think about those lives that we can save, the goodness that we can bring into the world doing random acts of kindness, I think it's also important to think about what are the acts of kindness that we can do randomly for ourselves to ensure that we are able to go out and do this good work that we're talking about doing here.
0: Love it, Ethan. And I wanna build off that, um, that image of the cup for a moment because I love what Ethan said about how if we wanna pour our cup out, kos revaya, an overflowing cup we talk about. If we wanna pour that cup out for others, we need to fill up that cup ourselves. Now, there's a lot of privilege involved in filling up cups, right? Because if we are run to the bone in our work, if we are a single mother, or maybe not even a single mother, if we are, for whatever reasons, unable to escape in a way where we actually can fill our cup, it may be that we're doing it wrong, or it may be that our life is structured um, uh, perhaps unfairly, or or perhaps fairly, in a way where it's very difficult to, to, to fill our cup. Um, because it is, and it may also be that we don't know how to fill our cup. I think getting a manicure feels my cup. Um, but I didn't need a manicure. I needed therapy. I think therapy fills my cup, but I didn't need therapy. What I needed was like a nap. I thought therapy filled ther- a nap filled my cup, but I didn't need that. I needed some words of praise, right? To really know how to fill our cup is itself a deep form of wisdom, right? But now I want to build off one level further also. In addition to needing to fill our cup, to pour our cup, we also need to expand the size of our cup, right? And what do I mean by that? Many of us... Um, can have a narrow sense of kindness, right? We can only think of like five things we can do. I'm going to pet my cat. I'm going to like go donate $18 online. I'm going to go and, um, you know, send an email that says a nice word to someone. Those are all fine things, but we need to have a lot more tools in the toolbox of of what kindness can entail. Um, And we need to expand that sense of spiritual imagination, moral imagination of possible ways we can give possible ways we can impact. And part of that is because we know empirically that we tend to give the kind of love, not that others need, but the kind of love we need. And so we tend to do acts of kindness for others that are not in touch with the type of act of kindness they need, but is the type of act of kindness I need. A typical example would be like the the parent who smothers their child or grandchild with hugs and kisses, right? It may be that that child or grandchild really wants to be smothered in hugs and kisses right it may be that they're like oh I, I they're in that stage of life where they don't want hugs and kisses right they want to go like play catch with football they want like you know ten dollars so they could go buy a drink you know what i mean so like as a parent who loves to give hugs and kisses that's hard for me to think about but you know it's true in all relationships like we need to give the kindness that the person needs not the kind that we need to give so Ethan, thank you for that around the cup, and and also this reminder of 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 of, um, of one life. Um, so and yes, Aglaya, thank you for the statement. Josh fills my cup. Um, uh, we we appreciate that. We appreciate you being here with us consistently. So uh, seven classes this semester. Yeah, great.
3: Teaching yeah. seven classes a
0: semester. What does that mean? What does that mean? Seven classes a semester.
3: I'm teaching seven classes a oh,
0: semester. Oh! Oh! Wow! Okay.
3: Oh my goodness! That's not even possible.
0: Teaching one class is draining. Teaching two is seven classes a semester. That's <laughs> okay. So, um, my 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 bracha to you, uh, my blessing to you, um, and to anyone else this applies to, when we have too much on our plate. And we simply can't find that space to fill the cup, that we somehow find a way for our cup to be filled through the exertion, right? Um, that the exertion its right as opposed to work-life balance, it's work-life integration. That the work we're doing, we do it in a way that fills us, right? Because <laughs> none of us get the vacation time. Perhaps most of us don't get the vacation time we need. Most of us don't get the, you know, the, have the luxury to get all the things we need. But can we do the work in a way that also fills us? And another way to think about that: think about exercise. There's a type of exercise that just is so depleting, right? But there's a type of exercise that really fills you. It really fills you. Like maybe you hate jogging, but you jog because you feel you need it. Maybe what you need is to join a basketball team or, or a tennis club or or join Ethan's CrossFit group, right? <laughs> um so and so, so too, like um th- w- like we need the work to sustain us. Now I know that's a privileged approach because some um, some people can't choose work that sustains them or can't choose a workload that does that. But are there some ways that we can do that? We we can shift that. Okay. Um yes, hi Toby back to you.
5: First of all, Aglaia, God bless you for the work that you're doing because I, I I wouldn't want to jump out of a window or something I couldn't do that job. I don't care if I, you've made me ten billion dollars a year um, but I mean I'm sure people would say that about criminal defense work too you know it's it, but I found and and you're right um, Rabbi it, it, I did a lot of different things before I became a lawyer. I, I was an architect, I bought clothes at Saks. I was an advertising executive, and I did a lot of things. I worked for the music business, so I did a lot of things. And I, it wasn't until I went back to law school at 40 and found law that I found something that I truly loved. The moral of that story, and, and it kind of relates to what you were saying is, don't be discouraged if you don't love what you're currently doing. You know, um, I can only encourage people, have the hope that try something else you know, go back to law school at 40 or 50, or there was a woman in my class that was 62, you know, and she made it through law school and is practicing now. But I'm just saying, if you, you, because work, how much a day do we work? 10 hours, you know, I mean, that's a lot. (laughs) If you count that up over the years that you're working, um, don't give up, try something else.
0: Yeah. Uh thank you, Toby. And wow, 10 hours. I I, I would dream of a of an only 10 hour workday. <laughs> um, but yes, thank you. So and I wanna I want to add one other point to Toby's, which is um um sometimes what we need to change is not our outer world, but our inner world. Um sometimes we're taught like go reinvent yourself, go move to another country, go like get divorced and marry a new person, like go change your career. Right. And there are times we have to make those big shifts, of course. And yet. Sometimes what we need is not a career shift or a relationship shift or, or 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 move a house, you know, but what we really need is an internal shift. and um, and so and so here I want to bring up like in every job or uh, I, I imagine every job, maybe you got really lucky, you'll to able to do a whole bunch of stuff you don't want to do, right? I know in my job, there's a whole lot of stuff I don't want to do, and I'm blessed there's a whole lot of stuff I do want to do. But like the thing is like, um, how do I bring an inner state of being into that work? That changes my relationship to it, right? How do I bring a certain joy, a certain form of being? It's like I wanted to tell this to my five year old when she went to get a cavity filled yesterday. It didn't work. She screamed her whole time. They couldn't do the cavity. But I wanted to, like, you should zen out in your dentist chair that you are in, like, a spiritual state where you're not even noticing that they're, like, filling your cavity. You know, it didn't work, right? But, um, But, like, there's a whole lot of stuff in life we can cultivate the resiliency to deal with more joyfully if we. Can figure out that inner state, that inner state of uh, of being. So, good, Sarah. We're going to take you, and then we're going to close up.
4: So, um, I guess to echo what you're saying, perhaps, uh, is that when we are in that state of not wanting to be doing whatever it is we have to do, it's about recognizing the need in us that we're actually meeting and fulfilling and, and we may not enjoy the way that we have to fulfill that need in this moment. And maybe we'll find another way of meeting that need, but it goes back to those Maslow uh, yeah. hierarchy of needs. And there is a need, otherwise we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be doing it. And as for your child, I would suggest that a child or even an adult who is under such stress, it's about helping them get to a different place, whether you're, actually you're inviting them into a place of self-hypnosis, of going to that other place where we are safe, we're happy, we're in a story, a storied land in our own being Mm -hmm. where we have joy and we are in comfort and at rest. And often, It's so easy to go to the place of stress rather than the place of joy and ease.
0: Yeah, great. Great. I love that. I love that. And so I want to offer us this as we close up on Sarah's point there, that there's two different kind of meaningful mental states we're involved talking about here. One is the form of mindfulness, and the other is kind of a different kavana, a mind intentionality. Mindfulness, as you know, or at least one form of it, is being hyper-present to what we're doing. I'm brushing my teeth and I am getting all distraction out and being hyper conscious of this act of brushing my teeth. I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm just in this moment. I am a farm worker picking tomatoes and I am like zenning out in my relationship to this tomato. Right. Um, I am. But then there's this other type that Sarah's talking about here, which is not being hyper present to what's happening, but actually a covenant, of a different mental state that is avoiding actually the physical activity i'm getting this cavity filled and i'm not focused on it my mind is in a different state of of elevated consciousness that is focused on being in a different realm of reality and both of those are interesting to play with in our day like when can i go back and forth to being present and actually not being present Um, in a different form of spiritual state. Wishing everyone a beautiful day. Thank you for this gift of giving me uh, of your presence and of learning together and of offering your beautiful insights. Have a wonderful day. See you soon. God bless. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Bait Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmadrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeatmadrash.org donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.